In today's episode, we continue in the book of Esther, chapter 2. Things took a dramatic turn in the previous chapter when the king deposed Queen Vashti when she refused to be paraded around for the entertainment of his guests. Now, the search for a new queen begins, and Esther, a young Jewish woman, is chosen. But Esther must keep her Jewish heritage a secret to avoid any potential persecution or discrimination in the Persian court. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Friday, January 27th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their publishing and translating work at lhfmissions.org. Well, to guide us as we delve into Esther chapter 2, joining me this morning is regular guest, the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Tice. How are you doing? Good morning, sir. I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm enjoying Oh, you're doing... You're doing very well. I could tell just by the timbre of your voice that you are in the KFUO studios. It always sounds so nice coming out of those uh, microphones. They, they do uh, a so, good job, yes. They, they really do. So what are you doing in St. Louis? I know you're in New Wells, but uh, what brings you to this? We, my wife and I uh, came up this week. We had uh, one of our granddaughters was taking part in a uh, Bible Bowl program at her, her school here in the metro St. Louis area. And then we have a couple of grandchildren who have doctor's appointments today. So we came up. My wife is helping uh, a daughter-in-law watching one of our grandchildren. And while she has a scheduled time to take another one to a doctor. So we're up in the the metro St. Louis area. And they they just live less than three miles down the road here from the International Center. So I, knowing I would be in town today, I caught to Mary Schmidt yesterday and said, hey, I want to come into the studio. Is that going to work? And she said, come on in. So here we are. That's that's great. That's awesome. Well, I'm uh, I'm glad to have you then. Um, but you. I tell you what, we have a lot to get through today. It's a fascinating story. I just love the book of Esther as it uh, evolves. It gets into some just great, uh, I mean, we're not going to get to some of it today, but just we're setting the stage today for some amazing uh, irony and maybe a little bit of humor from our point of view, mm-hmm. uh, but also behind the scenes, God working his providence, just some amazing stuff. But we have to set the scene for all those things to take place. And that's what's happening in chapter two. Before we begin, though, would you start us off with some prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and gracious God, we rejoice that your eye is always upon your children that you watch over us, that you hover above us, that you are in fact always our keeper, that you are in fact gracious, that there is none who is like you, and that in your great love for us, you have made us new in Christ. We thank you also for the study of your word, the chance to see how over the centuries, through the millennia, you have guarded and kept your people. And yet at times, Satan's attacks are so intense and strong that We seem to perceive that you are not watching. Lord, we know that you always see us and that all things work together for good to those who love you, whom you've called according to your purpose. As we study your word today, help us see that in the life of Esther and her family. Also help us to see it in our own lives and the family of your people here on the church, 
that still remains waiting for Christ to come again. Until that day, let us shine as bright lights in a world that needs Christ's power to break the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, before we read any of our texts for today, I think it'd be a good idea to set the stage, right? Give us some background for anybody who might have missed yesterday's program when we began this brand new book. Uh, and I'd like to have you do that. Just take us through what has happened so far. N- not a whole lot, but it's significant. And, and that way people are all caught up. Okay. Well, this is uh, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, as he's also known. This would be the third... Third in line after Cyrus came in and, and overthrew the Babylonians, and he has now begun his reign. And when he began his reign, he did two very significant things. One is he threw a big party. The other one that's not in our text, but it's there, is he destroyed the Babylonian statue of Marduk. And that was a, the tall golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up when he threw the men into the fiery furnace. And you remember how those men in the book of Daniel were told their names are all changed. Well, the same is true about the one we call Esther. Her her name is also changed for us, and we'll read about that as we get a little further in the book. But what he's done is is he, he threw the big party, and after a week of drinking, he asked his queen to dance to entertain the crowd. And she, knowing that most of the guys were drunk, probably him too, turned him down flat. So he dismissed her as queen. Well, in the meantime, he's been having warfare with the Greeks and the rebellion in the Egyptian territory. I mean, they ruled from Ethiopia to India. So it's a vast empire. So he's he's absorbed with some international politics. And now after a period of time, he realizes he got rid of a queen that was treating him well. And now he wants to get another queen in. That's where we are. Yes, absolutely. The the party, so to speak, uh, either lasted a few weeks or 180 days plus a few weeks. A lot of scholars say that it was kind of a working party. He, he had gathered all these satraps and and all the officials of his kingdom to plan what's going to happen as he you know wages war against some more parts of Greece. But yeah, they have this just gigantic party, as you pointed out. She was having none of that. Now she's in prison. And as we begin, um, and, and I'll read, but then one of the first questions I want you to take us through is, um, how much time has passed since then? Uh, let's figure it out. Let's think about that as we go through. But we are going to read, um, bum, 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 bum. let's do the first, let's just do the first four verses just to get us started. After these things, when the king of, I'm sorry, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who pleases the young woman, rather, who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. <laughs> well, a few uh, mistakes when reading there. Sorry about that. But, yeah, so we have this first section here. It's after these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this like the next day he's waking up with a hangover, or maybe some time has passed? No, no, this is this, uh, a few years later, three, four, five, perhaps, uh, most likely four. And it, he's tried to to conquer the Greeks, and he's been defeated. Uh, they were successful at Salamis, but they lost at Thermopylae. So there's a variety of different ways in which we see 
if you read the, the Greek histories and watch the movie, the 300 and all those kind of things, you'll, you'll see that this is actually the king that's involved in all that stuff. Um, so when we, when we look at what he's doing, he's, he's finally back home, no longer on a military campaign. And now his missing queen becomes so obvious because he's not absorbed with the international conflict he was engaged in. And his anger is abated. His, his focus has been so much on politics and international issues. You know, the, the whole issue that later on Mordecai becomes identified as a great leader. You know, it's one of the generals down the road for this general who, who is identified with a name. It's almost the same. But uh, the, the one we're looking at now is, is said, okay, I'm back home. Things have settled down. And being back home is tough because I don't have the queen I once had. She treated me well. And and now I've put myself in a situation where I don't have a queen. And so the king's young men who attended him said, well, let's fix that. Hey, let's make you happy. Let's do some queen shopping, so to speak. And that's that's what they're starting off with. Seek out the eligible. And, and I think the key phrase here is the uncommitted attractive virgins of the, of the kingdom. And we'll audition for a new queen that's really what's going on here so that's where they start one of the reasons why he can't just call vashti out of wherever she's at she's not like in the dungeon he's just sent her away and he said listen you know you can never come before the presence of the king again and he does one of these uh, this can never be revoked kind of deals oh yeah um, well, the, and even even though there's no real precedent in persian law for the king to be able to make these irrevocable decrees he still doesn't want to look foolish and besides he likes the idea of a brand new queen right yeah there's some indication that that this particular king was was a womanizer now i'm referring to other non-biblical sources some of which were for lack of a better term not kindly disposed to the medes and persians but uh Historians indicate that at least there's a, a record that says he was um, one to pursue females. So this would be a kind of in his personal disposition already. So and you can't go back, like you said, without looking weak and, and foolish. I made a bad choice when I got rid of the queen. Well, you've heard the phrase the law of the Medes and Persians. Once the king made a decree, it couldn't be changed. Now, a subsequent decree could, in fact, alter how it was applied, but it could never revoke it. We see that in the book of Daniel as well. So, Right. Well, we so. see that. And, um, well, anyway, I was referring to some sources that actually have claimed that that wasn't the case, but rather it's sort of indicative of the arrogance of these particular kings. Uh, we also do see that in Daniel. And it comes up again in the book of Esther when he has to basically undo what he has done but mm -hmm. as you point out, he does it in a way that doesn't necessarily revoke the first one, uh, but just doubles down in a different way. But we'll talk about that, obviously, in just a few a uh, few days, actually. But let's get back to the text. So we're looking here. He says, let their cosmetics be given to them. I think that's kind of a, a funny phrase because you have Haggai here, who I guess is the guy in charge, well, it says in charge mm -hmm. of the women, but I guess he's the, the harem master. He's the ringleader of all these women. I, I think what we see here is the parade that Vashti 
uh, was going to or was demanded to do, he now essentially, these many years later, in his quest for a new queen, is trotting out all these young virgins. So it's kind of yeah. like what he wanted to happen and Vashti refused. He's found who knows how many all these other women to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also suggests or I guess basically just says that even though he's looking for a new queen, he still has a harem and someone who's permanently in charge of it. Um, he's he's living it up as King Xerxes here, as King Ashoeras. Yes, and this is, uh, I think, we we live in a culture that has so strongly been influenced by Christianity that we don't recognize that the, the concept of one spouse and one spouse at a time as was not the common practice in the ancient world, especially for rulers. If you read any history of the kings of European countries, they had mistresses, but there, you know, there was the official queen. And but what we're seeing here is this understanding that the king was. This shows up also in this, the story of King David as he ages. The king was identified as being a powerful, strong leader, partly because he was able to continue to produce offspring through his relationships with women. So his his virility was verified, if you will, by his producing children. And partially that's what's going on here with, with this king as well, but it's just a totally different value system, too. It's described for us here in, in Esther, but it's neither approved or disapproved. It's simply described. And so what they do is they literally they go shopping among the young eligible virgins of the kingdom, and they're brought in and, and literally brought through the process of first they enhance their appearance using body oils and different kinds of cosmetic treatments. They basically said, okay, some of these people have been living out in the desert. Maybe they're laborers in a farm or something. We're going to clean them all up, give a you know a full year treatment of, of beauty improvement, hair salons, whatever you want to call it, spas, to bring their physical appearance as much as medically it can be altered to a way that the king will be impressed. Um, And again, it's dealing with the outward stuff, not the inner stuff. And we are going to see that in just a few moments, some of the more specifics about it uh, in verse 12 and so. But then there's this, uh, well, I guess almost a parenthetical note about um, this Jew, Mordecai. So let's get into that, and we will keep going with verse 5. And uh, I guess I'll probably do it round to verse 11. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconi, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. 
Uh, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Hester was and what was happening to her. Okay, so we have Esther. She gets into the harem with the other women, and it seems like the eunuch there, Haggai, takes a liking to her. He must think that she'll be pleasing to the king, and she kind of gets special treatment there. But at the same time, these young women would not have had a choice in the matter. The, the words like custody and things like that really drive home that point. Yeah, this was a, an imposed enrollment, if you will, in the king's search for his, his next wife. And uh, somebody did the picking for him, but it wasn't optional. Once the, uh, the choice was made, you're brought in. Now, what's interesting here is we're told that there was this Judean in Susa whose name was Mordecai. That's not the name he was given at birth. Uh, we're told about his ancestry. He's from the Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin, from the, the same family as King Samuel, or King Saul, rather, a uh, family of Kish. And, and this man's name is Mordecai, which is... Uh, the same thing that happened back when Daniel first came, and we hear about this in the practice of, of the um, Babylonians and later the, the Medes and Persians. They, they don't repeat the names of the people that are Hebrew. They turn it into a, an Aramaic name based on their, their gods and, and their religion. So they, they can't call the girl by her Hebrew name, Hashdad, which means myrtle. So they give her the name Esther, which means star. Uh, we sort of see this showing up, by the way, in the New Testament with Simon, the son of Jonah, the brother of Andrew, who's also called Cephas, which is his Aramaic name. And the Babylon or the Medes, the, the Mede Persian empires was was Aramaic. I mean, so this is a carryover hundreds of years later. And Jesus calls him Petros, Rocky. Um, but his his Hebrew name is Simon. His Aramaic name is Cephas. His Greek name is Peter. Well, we see that starting already here when Hashdod is called Esther, an Aramaic name that means star. So the, the name Mordecai literally means one who is a servant to or dedicated to Marduk. And that remembers the, that big statue that Xerxes had torn down, melted down, changing a custom that had been part of the tradition in that nation for, well, a couple hundred years that the king would, on a day of the year, take the hand of this statue and say, I, I promise to uphold and protect the people of the land. This King Xerxes had wiped that tradition out. But the guy who's raised up now to protect Esther is a reminder that the king who destroyed this ancient god doesn't have power over everything. There is a different god in charge. And I think that's part of the thing we miss in English because we just don't get the the changing names situation. It's like the uh, the names that we're familiar with for the three men in the fiery furnace, you know, we got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servant of Nego. But their real names are Azariah, Yahweh is our keeper, Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious, and Mishael, who is like God is. Well, the, the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians can't keep calling them by these Hebrew names. What we're told specifically here is this guy is from the people of Judea. And Esther is also then identified as a Judean from the southern kingdom that was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar. And so what we see here is family taking care of family. And God doesn't leave the, the orphan alone. He's provided for her, her cousin, who's of an older generation, and raises her as his own daughter. And so when the, the edict came out and was proclaimed, uh, she was taken 
to the king's palace and then given special treatment, God is looking out for her even in the beginning that the eunuch in charge, Haggai, sees her as different than the others and treats her specially, giving her seven attendant virgins. There's a number in symbolic biblical language that says God's involved. Now, I don't know how the the Medes treated the number seven, but I know how how it registered with the people of Israel and with God's tool of teaching us through number symbolism in Scripture, that this woman is is identified as one who has now God's involvement. And she then is treated specially and moves forward in favor above all the others because God is blessing her in this situation. And again, the word, the name God doesn't show up in this particular book. But the number seven clearly identifies this Judean girl and her family from the tribe of Benjamin, the two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, that stayed under the family of David at the time of the split kingdom. This one has God's protection. And that's clear if you understand the context of the names and the numbers and the terms being used in this particular book. Fascinating insight. You did say something about um, how the Medes and the Persians might have considered the number seven. Um, like many cultures, it was holy to them, too. Um, the, For instance, the god of the sky had seven holy attendants. Uh, the god of the earth had seven holy horses, et cetera, et cetera. Seven shows up a ton. So you always wonder, like, why would they pick seven? And maybe that is one of the reasons why. Maybe seven attendants was consistent with uh, the attendance of one of their sky gods. At the same time, it's amazing how God continues to work through all of these these well pagan we might generically call them pagans but these these people who are not of his people and yet he works in ways that we don't see behind the scenes he sends us his word of course in these last days but this is at a time when I'm sure she would have wanted to be uh, re reassured by God that she was doing the right things, that things were going to be taken care of for her, especially as her story grows and her influence over the king grows. Uh, but, yeah, it's a fascinating story. I also noticed that when they talk about Mordecai, and as you pointed out, Mordecai's Hebrew name isn't given to us, uh, but they call him a Benjamite. They emphasize his uh, Benjamiteness. Is that a word? Sure. <laughs> but anyway, he... Uh, his later uh, foe, so to speak, is Haman, who they then connect with um, the, uh, uh, you know, an ancient foe of the Benjamites, dating back to the time of Saul. We call him an Agagite. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we'll talk about later on when we get to that, uh, maybe in a couple of days, whether or not that is a actual, you know, history for him. Like that's actually his heritage as a Haggagite or whether or not. You know, the author of Esther is just using that as a as a term, as a derogatory term against him. But regardless, we have these things and typically they aren't given to us for no reason. So, yes, it's very good to look at that and just see, you know, how does that fit in to what God has told us elsewhere? Interestingly enough, I also found that um, Hadassah, that is Esther's name, you said it means star. And of course it does. Uh, but the original readers might have also thought of Ishtar, uh, the mm -hmm. Akkadian god. And this, um, I think, as you were pointing out, this idea where they're renaming them after their own gods and they're basically trying to assimilate them into their own culture. But I always find it interesting, and this happens with Daniel and Meshach Abednego and the first guy, uh, Shadrach. Yeah. We, we often remember their, I say, new names mm -hmm. and not their Hebrew names, even when they're given to us. 
I mean, yeah. why don't we call her Hadassah rather than Esther? Why, why not? Well, you know, it's partly because the book is labeled that way and partly because I think for you and me, it's important to recognize that this book was then disseminated at the time. Ezra and Nehemiah are already back in Jerusalem working on the temple and the, the walls, but it's not done yet. And so this is done at a time when there is a, a tension even in Jerusalem against the people of Israel. And so the the using of the the Aramaic terms that come out of the Babylonian and Medo-Persian reign connects it to other people who may not have been able to read Hebrew or even knew Hebrew, but can get the connection that these people are actually in the records of the Babylonians or later the Medo-Persian Empire, and they can say, hey, there's a connection. We can see it. At least that's one distinct possibility. No, that makes sense. And by the way, listeners at home, I made a, a slight error. I accidentally said that um, Hadassah was meant Ishtar. Obviously, I meant that Esther was referring to the Akkadian goddess Ishtar. Uh, but right, so we yeah we see this, and it's just um, like I said, it's just amazing. And I've always thought about that too because we remember them by these names, and it sounds like you're saying, well, that's just how they were passed down to us. To you a know, large I, extent, I think, that's part of it. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, and that makes sense to me. I feel like our culture today often wants to, let's say, rewrite history to kind of right all the injustices, even if it doesn't really serve teaching history well. So one might look at this and say, well, we're not going to call her by her Babylonian name or her uh, her uh, um, you know Persian name. We're going to call her by her Jewish name to represent who she really is. Well, that kind of misses the point to go back and say, well, we must use all of these Jewish names in honor of who they really are, because part of their history, part of their story is her being Esther, queen of the Persians. Yeah, and I think connected to that is the fact that God can work through his plan, regardless of what label humans put on it. And, you know, the the need to translate is helpful in many cases for us to grasp the, the deeper meaning. But to get the details, we can use the common terminology and the standard phrases. You know, just thinking about, I don't know if you're aware of this, but today is uh, January 27th is the day that's called the Holocaust Memorial Remembrance Day. This is the date in 1945 when the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp was, I'm going to use the word liberated. I don't know if it's really the right term, but the... Uh, Allied forces entered it on the 27th of January in 45. So today, this particular topic gets back to the fact that God always remembers his people. God's people don't always remember him. He is faithful. And even when we are unfaithful, he never lets us down. He never lets his promises go. It may look to us like he's not. And this is why we look at the names Mordecai, Esther, and we might think, well, God wasn't looking out for his people. And yet as you get further into the book, you may say, you know, the name wasn't the issue. It was the action God took in history that shows he was present with his people. That's a great point for us to reflect on as we take a break. Folks at home, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Tice and I will keep on going with Esther chapter two. We'll see you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me today is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Folks, I love hearing from you. It's such an encouragement when you write in to share with me how Thy Strong Word is a part of your devotional life. If you have any questions or comments about today's show or you just want to say hello, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and send me a message there. Thank you so much for listening and telling others about Thy Strong Word. They can listen on the air, on demand at kfuo.org forward slash Thy Strong Word or through your favorite podcasting app. And as, just, as you just heard in the messages, don't forget about the KFUO app. Well, Pastor Tice, before the break, uh, we were just sort of coming to just about what we could all talk about with verse 11. I'd like to move on, unless you'd like to say anything else about our previous verses before we do. Well, I think uh, the, the phrase here that, that's significant, Mordecai had commanded her not to make known what her ancestry was. This is, again, keeping in mind the time when the letters have been coming back from Jerusalem saying, hey, uh, these people down here are building this city. They are in rebellion against you. There's some international flavor of the uh, the tension that, that's undercurrent here historically that accounts for why Mordecai said, don't tell them what your relationship is, because right now there's some bad stuff going on and they're saying evil things about our people. So I think it's important to keep in mind that doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's there's other things going on at the same time. Absolutely. Starting with verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women, woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Sheashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. I think we can stop there right here at verse 14. Mm -hmm. So 12 months have passed. It took 12 months to beautify these women to get them, uh, I guess, good looking and good smelling enough to go into the king. Yeah, well, they had to clean them all up. But again, part of it is they were teaching them how to properly act in the in the court, how to be a, uh, for lack of a better label, a beautiful decoration without becoming a disruptive distraction. It sounds a little weird, but they were intended to be an adornment for the king while in his presence among others and not a distraction from the king. Now, when they're in the king's presence by themselves, that's a different story. So there's there's training and etiquette going on here. If you can use the word lady in waiting and courtesan, uh, those have meaning in our English culture. These 
these things had to be taught to these people. And partly it was for their protection, mostly keep in mind that if you get somebody who comes along and can get the ear of one of these young virgins who's going to spend some time with the king, you might just have a threat against the king's life going on. So there's there's vetting going on, there's training going on, there's a bunch of different stuff that's always implied but never stated in scripture about the interactive relationship. And the young woman went into the king this way, given what she wanted to take with her. They go in, spend one night with the king, in the morning they come back out. So it's not stated directly here, but basically, as I mentioned before, this king had a reputation for being a womanizer. And one of the things that's going on here is he's he's asking the question, does this one satisfy me in every way? And so there's uh, sexual activity going on that night they go to the king. It's uh, not a guaranteed thing, but it's certainly probable. So Well, and we seem to have two different harems. That yes. is the, the harem itself of the virgins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's Haggai's job. And then we have Sheashgaz, who's the king unit in charge of the concubines. So we have a queen, we have virgins, and then I guess this evening with the king could result in them no longer being a virgin. And so if he liked them and wanted to keep them around, he would they would go to this Sheashgaz guy. Right. So it's it's the audition. If you first you know you're auditioning for a part. You got through the first read, you're being kept packed for the second read, you go to a new waiting room. Yeah. Um, and again, partially what's going on here is you're you're making sure that these individuals aren't a danger to the king, but also can't then be used as a, uh, a, a tool to manipulate the king by putting them under control of a particular eunuch. And I think it's important to remember the, the whole understanding of the man being a eunuch was that he himself then isn't tempted by the women, but also he can't be tempted to be bribed because he has no descendants, he has no no family that he's taking care of. So there's part of the political intrigue with the care of the harem being in the, the custody of a man who does not have family and therefore is far less likely to be manipulated by anybody trying to pull a fast one. Well, exactly. Everybody that's around the king, I'm sure, is closely watched and closely trained. And we have these women that, let's say he puts them in these harems, uh, they don't generally, if I understand the history about it right, they don't really ever go back home. They end up continuing to be part of the king's palace, but really his property. Yeah, and, and, and they would have lived lives of luxury, but I guess what I'm getting at is this isn't something you would have wanted. Even being the queen would have come with all of these privileges but it's not necessarily something that the normal young lady would have aspired to, especially in light of what happened to Vashti. No, this is this is again, this is for the king's purpose. It doesn't ask, do you want to be here? I mean, you were you were brought in, you were put into it, and it was imposed on you. Now, if you were sent home afterward, never put in the king's harem, maybe you'd go home and somebody might marry that woman, might have a family, might have a life. But once you're in the king's harem, that's it. There's nowhere else to go. And again, it's partly to state that the king has power and all these these people are under his protection, control and provision. But it's also to say once this person has been possessed by the king, no one else is entitled to have them. So there's a way of I'll call it a type of ownership. Mm -hmm, Sure. Yeah, he's definitely they're they're essentially his property. 
And then any children that are born as a result of his interactions with them, they they don't it, it's not as though they then have rights to the throne or anything like that. Um, what I've understood is that they would probably be trained to work in the palace, maybe, mm-hmm. but they certainly wouldn't have had any any kind of actual significance, titles, anything like that, like we might have think of today. No, it would it would require a, a public ceremony slash marriage so that it's the queen, the wife of, of the king before they could become an heir. Just being a biological descendant wouldn't do it in that culture. So this is sort of the little bit of a, uh, I guess, intermission in talking about all the women being prepared, because with verse 15 comes the time for Esther. I'm going to read verses 15 through 18. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. All right. He liked her so much, he suspended taxes. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Public ceremony. Make everybody happy. She's queen. Exactly. Build support for her and for him by doing so. Um And then, ideally, any children that they have, the people will also have a fond remembrance that when he was conceived or when his mother first became queen, there was there was prosperity for us or at least less burden. I I think it's also for me, anytime I come across this reduction of taxes or removal of debt, it's always a reminder of the the transition from one high priest to another for the people of Israel. Debts were canceled. And and what we have here is is the going jumping ahead to a place where it's going to screw up some people. Ephesians five, where every marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. Every marriage. This is that same thing. Now, not in the sense that what King Xerxes does is right, but every marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And she had more favor. And she won grace and favor in his sight. But not just that. Everybody has Esther in favor. And so this is, this is in one sense a picture of the bride of Christ in its full identity. It will have full favor at the end of the age. Not right now, <laughs> but at the end of the age. And so, you know, looking at it through the long lens of, of Christian doctrine... It allows us to say the church is here. And if I'm reminded of Jeremiah chapter 8 and 9, where Jeremiah laments the, the daughter, the, the daughter who has died, and, and my heart is wounded for the daughter of my people. And then, is there no balm in Gilead? Well, the balm is coming. And, and it's pointing to the Messiah. Now, Esther is not part of the ancestry of Jesus. But this identification with the daughter of Jerusalem rejoicing. This is a time of rejoicing. And we're told twice this is the daughter 
of Abihail, my father is mighty, and Mordecai has adopted her as his own daughter. Anytime you get that kind of phraseology where the term daughter is repeated, you know, four times within this first two chapters, you got to go back and say, okay, what's going on here? Why is this term so important? And you tie it back to Jeremiah and to God's promises to the daughter of Jerusalem. We see here Esther winning the favor of everyone, and it certainly suggests something more than her just being attractive, right? She's, yes. She's also following the instructions. You know, she she doesn't take anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, had advised. She's doing things exactly as they are uh, being related to her. And I think that would have definitely won the king's favor, a sense of obedience, a mm. dedication to things the way he wants them done. And also, we must remember that Esther, being a Jewish woman, which is obviously made clear and essential to the plot of what happens, but to, in order to win the favor, she would have had to dress like, look like, smell like, and act like a Persian. So she's mm -hmm. really inculcating herself into the culture. Um, which is, um, again, you know, whether that is the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do, doesn't really matter because we never paint Esther as this perfect person. Esther is this uh, intercessor on behalf of the people. Uh, as you said, she's not Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, she's not even in the lineage of Christ. But we do see the reality of her in this situation, making the best of it, and God behind the scenes setting her up to be able to intercede on behalf of all his people. And speaking of setting things up, what happens next is very, well, one might say fortuitous, but that would be the wrong word because it's not just a coincidence. What's happening next is God's providence at work. Um, Mordecai happens to be around there, and he sees something and hears something. Let's look at it. This is verses 19 through 23 through the end of the chapter. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry, and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So we already have Esther acting as a intercessor, but even before that, it's emphasized that Esther obeyed Mordecai just as she did when she was brought up by him. So I always see Esther... You know, we, we picture her as this very strong queen who who you know saves her people from destruction, and that is true. But her strength is shown forth continuously in her obedience. Even when we come to the chapters where you know the the climax has happened and and she's you know she's doing the thing that's gonna save the people, even that is done in an act of obedience to to the king's wishes. She she does things the way he wants her to. It, it's just fascinating because she doesn't, I guess what I'm trying to say is she doesn't solve this issue by rousing up an army um, in a traditional sense. 
she does it through the channels. She does it in the way that makes her strong, and that is her obedience. Yeah, she is She is one who recognizes her position. And I think as you look at the, the account of the other people in this story, you know, Vashti uh, is the first one presented who opposes the king, and she is deposed. Then you have those who try to overthrow the king right here in this section. And later on, you have one who attempts to deceive the king out of jealousy. And and so in each case, what we discover is those who seek their own advancement in this particular story or insist on their own, I'm going to say, proper treatment are the ones who end up suffering. Those who are patient and wait to see what God will do, they're the ones who seem to, as the story moves forward, progresses, seem to be receiving the best. And there's a, a lesson for you and me in this, too, that that we can wait on the Lord's timing. You know, at, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. And that phrase is is hinted at later in this book as well. But the understanding that God is at work, but he is not slow as People count slowness. God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish. And I think in this epiphany season, it's important for you and me to remember that the light of Christ is shining in the world. The darkness hasn't overstood, understood it, overcome it, or even grasped it. So the darkness continues to fight against it. What you and I are called to do, what the church is called to do, is to be the light in the darkness and to shine the love of Christ on to other people. And to do that properly, we have to be humble. And we have to not want our own way. We have to want what is best for others. And boy, is that hard. Because, you know, I want it my way. I want it in my time. I want to do it now. I want to, I want to see the results, you know. And, and those things are not always beneficial for me. And, and God requires me to wait for him to be acting and, and patiently praying, trusting that he's doing what he said. And just looking at, th at this whole understanding, Mordecai is, is in a position to hear people coming in and out. He hears things, but he does it by sitting in a place where people have access to him, but he's not going around talking. He's listening. Somebody once said, God gave us two ears and one mouth, which should tell us something about the proportion in which we use them. And, and I think that's a great challenge for for us, especially those sure. of us who, who by definition, make a living talking. So, you know, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> no, for sure, for sure. Well, you know, Mordecai being at the gate could be there for a number of reasons. I think later events suggest that he's there because he has some sort of official role that requires him to be there. Um, because, you know, even after... Uh, the uh, you know it's hard not to give things away, uh, but I want people to hear this sort of as it takes place. But later on, you know, he's he's going to be rewarded and he's going to go right back to his place at the gate. When I brought this up uh, in a, a smaller group of parishioners at my church, um, one of the things they asked, and I think it's a good question, is you know it seems that uh, Mordecai has pretty easy access to the queen. He could have passed this information along to others. Uh, to other officials, uh, you know, to get to the king. But he seemingly intentionally transmits it directly to Queen Esther. Um, and I would not be surprised that he has access to her for a couple of reasons. One, she can pretty much do what she wants within reason. Um, he is her relative and, mm -hmm. I guess, 
father figure. Um, so it, it's not uncommon that he would probably have access to her. But I think even more the point, he wants her to be seen as even more reliable and, and be rewarded in the eyes of the king. So he'll be rewarded for this information, and, and she makes sure of that by looking out for him to tell him that it actually came from him. But at the same time, she'll be rewarded. Uh, what's left out of this is what if it wasn't true? You know, it's investigated and found to be true. Mm -hmm. um, but what if the king uh, had – I guess what I'm saying is Esther is trusting implicitly uh, Mordecai because she'd be putting her life and his life in danger if for some reason he had misheard. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt if he had misheard. But yeah. she trusts him. So there's all that going on even with this little interaction. Yeah, I, and I do think that the part of what we recognize here is – of course, the story is, is as we read the scripture, it's it's history, and we're looking back. We know the outcome, and it's so important as you just did to put ourselves back in the time period of of not knowing the outcome and seeing how they were faithful. They were faithful to what they knew to be right, and they did what was right because of who they were and whose they were. And in doing that, they also served the king and they served the nation. And this is true for us today as well. Uh, when we when we do the, the, the right thing, because it is the right thing, it's actually good for everybody, even though not everybody would appreciate it. I think the other thing that's, that's clear here is we're told the name of these two eunuchs who plotted against him, they became angry. Why did they become angry? We're not told. They became angry. Were they... Perceiving themselves as mistreated, that they think something had gone wrong, we're not told why. What we are told is that Mordecai and Esther are not getting angry. Esther is taken, put into the king's harem, even before she's the queen, when she's in the, the uh, recruit stage. She doesn't say, oh, this is a terrible injustice, I should never be treated this way. Even though it might have been a terrible injustice, and she may not have deserved to be treated that way as a human being, doesn't matter. She said, okay, this is the situation I'm in. I will use what I have to serve others. I think this is always part of what our call is as Christians. And, you know, we look at Jesus, who humbled himself and became a servant to everybody, every human who ever lived, ever will live. And you and I are called now to be servants. Mordecai was being a servant to the king. Who is, who is the ruler? Was he a believer in the true God? No. Did the true God allow him to be king at this point in history? Yes. And what does God say about leaders in a country? They are my servants for your good. Notice that God doesn't say they're your servants for your good. They're my servants, God's servants, for our good. And so God allows people to be rulers at times when you and I would say, what is God doing here? It makes no sense. And, and so we're called to as Mordecai and Esther did, to pass on the useful information to benefit those who are ruling in a way that we give accurate information. We may not agree with all their choices, but at the same time, we don't get to make the choice about who God has in charge at what point in time. Now, in our country, we're entitled to vote, and we do that, but we can't control the outcome of an election, although it's been rumored several people have tried. Mm -hmm. um, we, we still recognize that God is the one ultimately in charge of history. And that's so hard for us because we, A, would like it to go our way, and B, we're not patient enough. 
And and God took, you know, this is seven years after he becomes king. So at least six years after Vashti has been removed that Esther becomes queen. Took seven years. Huh. What do you know? Seven. (laughs) For the queen to be replaced. For a new queen to be here. And so we, we see that patience is part of our calling as well. And, well, and whether again, that's hard. whether voting to you know take part in the way that we choose our leaders uh, and entrusting in God in whoever ends up being in that office, all the way to you know calling a pastor, um, or if you're even at work and you work for a boss or you hire or a person who hires and you hire someone, there is a part of us that needs to remember that even if things don't go exactly our way, that ultimately god is the one doing all the all the work behind the scenes and that and that's of course going to be a recurring theme in esther that there's this providence god god can be seen even if he's not uttered openly or explicitly he can use people who don't even believe in him to affect his will and he does that all the time so that's a good message from you to us uh to remember that mm-hmm. well well we are right here at the end of the program we have just a few minutes left um maybe one minute just your sort of final thoughts before we close out the program. Well, there, there are two things that came to my mind right now. One of them was Joseph's comment to his brothers. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. How many years was that? Well, the seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, at least the seven good years, plus the time before that. It, it was a long time before the good God had in mind became evident to the brothers. And in God's timing, things will be proper. Our timing isn't always right. But the other thing is the last phrase in the in this chapter, of course, we divided the chapters, but it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. These people kept records. These records no longer exist for us, but because they kept records at that time, they were able to go back and say, what happened? How was God at work? And the one who gives us a record of his activity in history in the Bible calls you and me to come back to his word, to read it. Jesus says, search the scriptures. They testify about me and them. You have eternal life. So we have here another reason for us to keep going back and reading the record of eternal life, God's rescue of his people throughout time for eternity. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you and God's blessings with you and your crew up in the North Country. Thanks. And dear saints, tune in tomorrow as we turn the page in Ruth to chapter 3. Esther is queen, but King Ahasuerus has placed Haman as his prime minister and given him authority to rule over all the other officials. One official, Mordecai, refuses to bow down, and Haman responds in anger and devises a plan to destroy all the Jews. What will come of his plan? Will Queen Esther have any influence over it? Those are all the things that we'll explore and more when we return uh, Monday. Monday. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. <laughs>